0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How's your day, Ben? It's uh, the last day of 2017.
1: For us. For our listeners, they already live in the glorious future of 2018.
0: Yes, but how's the last day for you? Eh. Yeah?
1: It could be better, <laughs> which I, you know, is appropriate for this year. I think that sums up this <laughs> year in general. <laughs> you know, eh, it could have been better.
0: I guess. What's one thing from 2017 that you are uh, super proud of?
1: I guess it would be starting this podcast with you. Uh, Because this podcast is a completely 2017 entity until this episode, our first episode of 2018.
0: So then 2017 couldn't have been that bad.
1: But it was a bit horrific.
0: (laughs) Hey. For me, probably one thing that I'm super proud of is... Producing and releasing two albums and kind of making music. Yeah, where
1: can people find your music, Sarah?
0: Oh, uh, it's stegosaras.bandcamp.com. Uh, that's S-T-E-G-O-S-A-R-A-H-S.bandcamp.com.
1: And are both your albums there?
0: They are, as well as um, a special song that I made for Jack Kirby's 100th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so take a take a listen to that. Uh, what are we watching today, Ben?
1: Well, today we are watching our first British sound horror film. It's The Ghoul from 1933.
0: When you say that it's the first British one, I always go, but wait, Old Dark House, but that's just a very British movie, but it was made by Americans. Yeah. Well, produced. By an American
1: studio. Yes, in America. But yeah, I mean, British director, British writers based on a British novel starring a British cast set in Britain. But definitely made (laughs) by Universal Studios in America. We've sort of mentioned in passing in previous episodes that many of the recent American horror films had found a greater financial success in the UK. As the backlash against horror gathered steam in the United States, British audiences were strongly taken with films like The Old Dark House or The Mummy, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. However, the love of British audiences did not equate to the love of the British censors. (laughs) The British Board of Film Censors had difficulty certifying the horror films and famously denied a certificate for Island of Lost Souls, which effectively banned it from British soil. Mm -hmm. The continued tension between the popularity of the horror genre and the concerns of parents groups and other morality activists led to the BBFC introducing a new certificate rating in 1933. So since 1912, the BBFC had certified films as either U for Universal or A for Adult. And the A for adult rating meant that all children had to be accompanied by an adult if they were to see the film.
0: So like PG-13 today.
1: Uh, More like PG. The new certificate uh, that they introduced was H for horror. (laughs) Um, And this specified that only those aged 16 and older could be admitted. Okay. So you sort of broke down into U, everyone can get in, A, If you are under 18, you can get in if you're with an adult. And H, you cannot get in if you're under 16.
0: Regardless of whether an adult is there. Yeah,
1: no under 16 admitted. Okay. Yeah.
0: So then is this the first film to have this H rating?
1: Exactly. This is the first film rated H for horror. Then we should really call it The Hool. Ugh. Mm, No.
0: No? Okay. That's fine.
1: Film producer Michael Balkin reasoned that having a homegrown british horror film would have an easier time with the bbfc due to british filmmakers already being familiar with the needs of the censor board whereas american films were having to do cuts and edits or not be certified at all balkan had been born in 1896 in birmingham and had been working in film since 1921. In 1924, he founded Gainsborough Pictures, which quickly gained a reputation for high-quality productions and was the first studio to hire Alfred Hitchcock as a director. Oh. In 1927, Gainsborough was bought out by Gamont British, a major British production distribution and exhibition firm. Founded in 1898 as the British subsidiary of the French Gaumont Film Company... It had gained independence in 1922 and was now operating as its own corporate entity. After the takeover of Gainsborough, Balkin was made director of production for Gamont British, and Gainsborough was remade into a label for Gamont British's B-movies. Balkin knew that for a homegrown British horror film to succeed, it would need some star power, and he reached out to the popular Boris Karloff to return home to England to appear in the film.
0: Right. I guess it's in the Frankenstein episode. We kind of give his biography and his little stint in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool.
1: So we last saw Karloff in... The Mummy? The Mummy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we've seen him in anything since. Karloff hadn't been back to England in 24 years. Wow. Which is when he had left to become an actor in Canada. He was very nervous and reluctant to return to England, but he needed a job because he had just had a falling out with Universal Studios, his primary benefactor. Universal had wanted Karloff to star in The Invisible Man, but refused to raise Karloff's weekly salary from $750 to $1,000, so Karloff refused the part. So, in March of 1933, Karloff set sail to England to work for Balkan at Gamont British.
0: I didn't know that they had a falling out. I thought Karloff and Universal were always best buds. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, they had this issue because Karloff had joined the recently formed Screen Actors Guild. Oh, and, uh, sick. Yes, and was looking for higher wages given his immense popularity. Karloff, who had changed his name from William Pratt to avoid embarrassment to his family members, feared that his siblings would disapprove of his macabre claim to fame and his choice of career. Instead, his three brothers, who were all dignified diplomats and members of the British Foreign Service, Greeted him at Southampton Docks like fans, (laughs) happily posing for pictures with him, (laughs) asking him to sign autographs, asking for copies of the photos they got with him from the press, and just generally extremely excited to be reunited with their long-lost celebrity brother. (laughs) Uh, Far from being, you know, the black sheep of the family, everyone was just super excited that their brother was Boris Karloff.
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. For source material for the film, Balkan chose the 1928 novel The Ghoul by Dr. Frank King to be adapted by screenwriter Roland Pertwee, who is the father of John Pertwee, the actor who would play the third incarnation of the Doctor on Doctor Who. Oh.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how this movie is adapted from a novel, which was fairly popular, yet this film adaptation's reputation has completely overwhelmed any trace of, what is this novel about? Mm-hmm. So like you said, um, the novel The Ghoul is written by Dr. Frank King, um, but he actually collaborated with a friend of his, the Reverend Leonard Hines, in working on the novel, but also working on the play adaptation, which is probably what they adapted into the screenplay. Okay. Born in 1892 in Halifax, West Yorkshire, England. Not Halifax, Canada, like I was first excited to think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know there was a Halifax in England, but I guess that makes sense for sure.
0: (laughs) The King family ran a printing and publishing business. uh, and Later, that kind of adapted into a booksellers, because why not? If you're already making the books, why not just sell them? Mm Mm-hmm. Frank would study medicine at Leeds University, which, because I looked on a map where this Halifax is, and it's almost like a suburb of Leeds, the larger city. Okay. Uh, So it makes sense that he would go to Leeds. But what is interesting is he went to study medicine, and he qualified as a doctor in 1914. Kind of a good time for us to have doctors. Yeah. He served in the war in Egypt and the Middle East, And after the war, he set up his own practice back in his hometown, Halifax, with his wife, Annie Naylor. So going through medical school, you know, you focus on medical studies, but his family history of being involved in books kind of followed him throughout. And his first novel was published in 1924. It's called Miriam of the Moorland. Okay. He would write a second novel, and his third novel would be the Ghoul in 1928. By 1936, he was a prolific crime novelist. Um, pretty much all of his novels are in this crime mystery thriller genre. Interesting. Because he became so prolific, he was actually able to close his medical practice and write full time. Wow. Uh, he had four secretaries who would help him with like the correspondence you have to do and like the typing and everything. You got
1: to be doing pretty good as a writer. To be worth not being a doctor anymore, for sure right
0: yeah, it kind of seems like he's the Dean Koontz of his day because <laughs> of how prolific his his novels were <laughs> and with this medical knowledge uh from that previous profession, uh, the crimes and methods of murder <laughs> would be uh quite grim and detailed, but also accurate <laughs> to what like would actually be happening. sure. Throughout this time, he wrote many, many novels, but he would also write stories for the London Evening Post and many other magazines, and he would write a ton of plays. And it's mainly with these plays that he would be collaborating with Reverend Leonard Hines. Kind of most uniquely, I I just wanted to point this out, um, in 1934, they wrote a play about Robert Louis Stevenson called Tusatala. Huh. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Frank King died suddenly at the age of 66 in 1958. Uh, He was survived by his wife, but they did not have any children. He was a member of the Halifax's Authors Circle, uh, one of the founders of the Crime Writers Association, uh, which he helped found in 1953. It's kind of the British equivalent to the Mystery Writers of America. Mm -hmm. And he was also a member of the Halifax Thespians. Okay, yeah, so I feel like the plays that he wrote, especially because it's really hard to find anything about these plays. A lot of them are kind of like one act things it, they feel like a side hobby for his actor friends to put on in their local theater.
1: gotcha, gotcha. so what's the deal with the book the ghoul
0: like i I kind of alluded to in the beginning, a lot of the uh a lot of this film's reputation kind of supersedes it. Um, What I could find out about it is it's known as a thrilling mystery rather than a horror book. Okay. It's a pulp thriller about a criminal mastermind known only as the ghoul who has plunged London into a crime
1: wave. Okay.
0: And it's, like I said, I, I really had to dig deep to try to find anything about what the novel is about. That's about as close as I could get but it, there was contradicting things on whether there were supernatural elements in the, in the book. Hmm. Kind of where I could find a bit more information is uh, through the use of Google Books uh, that would allow me to see brief quotes of uh, people talking about the book, but because I could only see brief quotes, I don't know... Some things are contradicting, and I couldn't, be, I couldn't find a way to like, resolve that because I couldn't have access to the whole book. With that being said, the book has been described as more of an old dark house mystery, kind of like Cat and the Canary, rather than a horror tale.
1: Hmm, interesting.
0: But there's this one book who was talking about the iconic creatures in horror, and so this section was talking about the ghoul. So it mentioned this book briefly, and mentioned the criminal mastermind, as well as A reanimated corpse looking for a stolen object that will give it eternal life. Okay, those are some
1: disparate plot threads.
0: Exactly. But in doing this research, people kept mentioning how um, when it was being adapted to the film, the screenwriters brought in stuff from The Mummy because that was Karloff's last film, and he was riding the popularity wave of that, especially in Britain. Yes. So I don't know if... This particular thing about a reanimated corpse is brought in for the film, or if it's actually in the novel, or if this is just something that I found. I'm not able to be 100% sure.
1: Sure. But it sounds like what we can say about the novel, The Ghoul, is that it was about a criminal mastermind called The Ghoul
0: in who, London.
1: In London, uh, and was something of like a mystery thriller more than a horror story.
0: Yeah. Okay. Almost all of King's. Hey, I wonder if he's related to
1: Stephen King. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, prob- I I doubt it.
0: <laughs> Frank King's novels were all in a crime genre. Okay. Uh, he's known as a crime writer, so I would not be surprised if this does fit more into uh, the Bat type deal, where it's this criminal and they pull the mask off at the
1: end. Sure. So, to direct the film adaptation, Michael Balkin chose uh, an American, T. Hayes Hunter. Uh, Hunter had worked as a director in Hollywood since the 1910s. He had actually replaced D.W. Griffith at Biograph Film when Griffith left Biograph to found his own studio. However, after a fairly accomplished career, Hunter left Hollywood for Great Britain in 1927, seeking new challenges. Mm. The film's cinematographer is Gunther Krampf, who had been a camera assistant on Nosferatu mm-hmm. and was the cinematographer for The Hands of Orlac and the 1926 remake of Student of Prague. Okay. As well as the 1930 sound remake of Rauna.
0: So they're going for a German Expressionist feel.
1: Mm-hmm. As a German Jew, Kromf moved from Germany to Britain around this time with the assistance of Balkan, who greatly admired the German Expressionist movement. Mm -hmm. Joining Karloff in the cast was a bevy of talented British performers, uh, including Shakespearean actors Cedric Hardwick and Ralph Richardson, who is in his first film role in this movie. Both of these men would go on to sort of be titans of the British stage and screen. Cool. The other most notable member of the cast is Ernest Theisiger, who we last saw alongside Karloff as Horace Femme in The Old Dark House. The Ghoul was released on August 7th, 1933 in the United Kingdom to great popular success. Oh, good. Um, Ironically, underperforming in the United States. <laughs> However, uh, it did work out well for Karloff. When he returned to Hollywood after shooting the film, Universal agreed to raise his salary to $1,250 a week uh, and granted him permission to portray non-horror roles at other studios so that he could branch out in his acting. Uh, he just wasn't allowed to play horror roles at other studios because then he's competing with himself at Universal.
0: That makes sense. But also, good for Karloff. I'm glad things are working out for him.
1: hmm The Ghoul, despite its good reception in the UK, uh, was actually believed to be a lost film for decades after its release. In 1969, a murky, partially inaudible, Czech-dubbed, English-subtitled <laughs> copy called Bis. Was discovered and (laughs) believed to be the only version surviving.
0: Oh boy. Uh,
1: However, in the early 1980s, the original camera negative was discovered in perfect condition at the vault at Shepperton Studios behind a door that had been blocked by some stacked lumber.
0: (laughs) It's funny how you hear about these films being found. It's like just coincidence, you Mm -hmm, know? For sure.
1: Uh, so this negative was then restored by the British Film Institute and released on DVD in 2003 by MGM Home Video. The film has dropped into the public domain over the years, and due to that, we have it on the Scream Scene playlist.
0: Sweet. So that's how we're watching it, then? hmm yep. Listeners, if you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, we will watch the film... And be back after the break.
1: You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will rejoin you after having watched The Ghoul. From
0: 1933.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Ghoul from 1933, starring Boris Karloff. Sarah, what did you think?
0: I really enjoyed this movie.
1: I could tell you were having a lot of fun when we were watching it.
0: Yeah, it's right up my alley, you could say, with uh, the mood setting that it does, and the creepy shadows, and uh, use of light, or rather, lack of light. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really cool. What did you think?
1: I really enjoyed it, um... It's a curious mix of things um, because I think there's two flavors of movie getting mixed together here, Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's like a peanut butter cup where it's like two great tastes that go well together, and other times it's not as harmonious for me.
0: Okay, cool. Um,
1: Yeah, but we can... Discuss that after we tell our listeners what happens in this movie, which is... This is one of those movies with, like, too many characters and too many subplots, maybe, and, like, a lot of stuff going on at any given moment.
0: And the fact that, um like, it really uses those shadows and the film quality isn't super, super good... Because it's a public domain film now, and uh, like, I would love to see this either fully restored or when it was first released. Mm-hmm. Um, but at times it's hard to tell who is who.
1: Yeah, it's a little murky at times, and especially with like the shadows and the fog, and everybody's wearing black trench coats and slouch hats. <laughs> Anyways, so our movie begins with a scene that I think is, is sort of becomes emblematic of the rest of the movie, which is somebody following someone else. Uh, which happens a lot in this movie. In this case, it's Mahmud, who is following somebody named Dragore. They're both Arab characters played by English actors in brownface, and they're concerned because an Egyptologist named Professor Moreland has the, what was it called, the, the eternal light? Yes. It's a diamond. It's a big diamond. They're concerned that he has it because it can be used in some rituals, and Morlent's dying, and we need to get it away from him.
0: I'll just say that they are concerned that he has it, but more so, at least in the case of Mahmood, concerned that it has been taken from his homeland.
1: Yeah, so we cut to Morland, who is played by Boris Karloff, and he's dying in his bed, uh, you know, some doctors there taking care of him. There's also his solicitor, Broughton, I think is his name, who's going to look after the estate, and there's his house servant, Lang, who's played by Ernest Theisiger, trying his best to do a Scottish accent. Mm -hmm. The whole deal with Moreland is that he's a believer in ancient Egyptian religion, and he wants to be buried and have his death handled in that fashion. They're going to put him in a sarcophagus and in a tomb.
0: Like, he's an Egyptologist, so he kind of... Got too into
1: what he was studying. Yeah. Uh, A parson on a bike, Nigel Hartley, rides by and comes up to the house and says, I don't want this guy to die a pagan and in sin and all of this sort of stuff. And Lang just sort of tells him, like, hey, this is what he wishes, so, like, nothing you can say is going to change that. Right before Morland dies, he has, like, a final one-on-one with Lang where he sort of explains his plan which is that he's got this big old diamond, the Eternal Light, and he wants Lang to wrap it up with a bandage in his hand so that when he's put in his tomb, he will arise on the full moon after his death and present the diamond to this statue of Anubis that they're going to put in his tomb, and Anubis will take the diamond and grant Morland immortality.
0: Morland does offer the added incentive of, if my wishes are not followed, I will arise and do murder.
1: Yes, yeah. If if anybody, like, takes the diamond or screws around with this plan, I'm going to come after you after death and, and kill you kind of stuff. So Morland dies, and a bunch of dudes carry his massive stone sarcophagus into this tomb uh, and place <laughs> it there. Uh, accompanied by some Wagner music, they seal him in the tomb. And the the key detail here is that the tomb locks from the inside, mm-hmm. uh, so no one can get in after he's put in it. But he can get out once he's immortal, assumedly. So with Morland dead, that part of the movie's kind of over for now. And we shift gears into this other part of the movie that's about Broughton, the solicitor, trying to find out where this diamond is. Everybody wants this diamond because presumably it's worth a lot of money. Lang actually manages to get it out from the tomb before the tomb's sealed. Broughton knows that someone's gotten it out from the tomb, but he doesn't really know who has it or where it is. Lang hides it in Moreland's house. Broughton's trying to figure out who has it. Lang's trying to warn the heirs. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing going on.
0: Yeah, like to be fair, Lang is trying to make sure that the diamond goes
1: to the heirs. So there are two heirs: uh, Rafe Morland and Betty Holland. Is her last name? They don't like each other, and Rafe doesn't like Broughton, or really anyone for that matter. He's very smarmy and snarky to everyone in this movie. And there's a lot of complicated back and forth with Rafe trying to get to Betty and Broughton trying to get to Betty and...
0: Lang trying to get, get to, to Betty. Betty. All
1: for kind of different reasons, to get different information to and from them. There's a lot of back and forth. It all results with them going to Moreland's house. That's That's really what's important here.
0: Lots of following in the fog.
1: Yeah, people following other people, passing people notes, and then getting those notes stolen from them by other people. It's... A bit of a mess in this part of the movie. The point is they all go to Moreland's house, accompanied by Betty's maid, Caney, who's, she's like our comic relief character for this movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they get to Morland's house and they're trying to kind of settle out what's going to happen. Lang doesn't get there at the same time as the rest of them because he misses his train. So at first it's just Rafe, Betty, Broughton, and Caney. On the way to the house, they meet up with the parson from the start of the movie, and the parson's main concern seems to just be the fact that Morland wasn't Christian and didn't get a Christian burial. Paganism is bad, essentially. Mm-hmm. Also arriving at the house at this point is Mahmoud and Dragore from the very start of the movie, who have not been in the movie for like 20 minutes by this point. Uh, Mahmoud is to skulk around in the bushes and watch, and Dragore goes in. Caney sort of immediately falls for Dragore because he's a basically a suave, swarthy, exotic Easterner. And she's got like a mad fetish for that, uh, which is consistent with sort of what was romanticized in the 1920s and 30s was this kind of image of the like the desert chic. And in some clever writing, Dragore plays up all of that to try and sort of get Caney doing what he wants her to do and and get her on his side. He is here because he tells everyone that he was a friend of Professor Morlant's, but of course he's after the same diamond everyone else is. Lang finally arrives just as, you know, the full moon comes out and... The tomb opens, and undead Morland rises up from his sarcophagus and starts shufflingly shambling.
0: Yeah, looking for that diamond that was supposed to be in his hand.
1: Yes. So Lang is, you know, understandably terrified. He runs into the house, bumps into everybody else, kind of throws a fright into some of the other characters. There's a section of this movie that's just sort of everybody running around in the house, sometimes seeing undead morland and getting scared Rafe is convinced that this idea that morland's alive and running around the house is just an attempt by broughton to scare them all out of the house so that he can get the diamond
0: which is an understandable conclusion to come to given this trope of an old dark house
1: yeah Uh, The diamond itself keeps getting kind of moved from place to place to place. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, this character's got it now and now they're hiding it over here that goes on. Um, It ends up in Betty's luggage and she goes up to a bedroom to change, and Undead Morland follows her up there. It's worth saying, like, he's in, Karloff's in, like, full Frankenstein-ish mode in terms of, like, he doesn't talk, and he's just kind of, like... Shambly. He's staggering around, yeah. Uh, So he attacks her, he gets the diamond, he remembers that the Anubis statue's all the way back at the tomb, so he's got to go back there. She gets up after he leaves, tells Rafe and Broughton like, hey, I've seen this guy, he's real. There's a lot of running around in this house. But where we kind of end up is, Rafe phones the police, Rafe and Betty go to the tomb. Morland is presenting the diamond to the statue of Anubis and he puts it in the palm of one of the statue's hands and the hand closes and takes the diamond, which is the sign that it's accepted it and that Morland is now immortal. Uh, but instead, Morland falls over and maybe dies? He was doing self-mutilation on his chest to put in the symbol
0: of Anubis.
1: That's right. That's right. He takes, like, a, he, like, carves, like, an ankh into his chest, right?
0: The doctor, when, when he first dies, the doctor says it's heart failure, mm-hmm. and the way he falls over here is, like, as if he's had another heart attack.
1: Yeah. It turns out that the hand that took the diamond wasn't the statue's hand, but the hand of parson Nigel Hartley pretending to be the statue's hand and also pretending to be a parson. He's just a criminal who's been like playing a long con to also try and get at this diamond. But that's when Dragore comes into the tomb with a gun and he shoots Rafe, gets the diamond, gets out of the tomb takes the key, and seals everyone inside.
0: Upon leaving the tomb, Dragore bumps back into Kaney, who he's kind of been, like, trying to get away from because she just won't leave him alone. And he kind of shrugs her off, but she grabs onto his pocket and rips it open, making the diamond fall onto the ground, and he continues, whatever. Broughton is waiting for Dragore in his car has a gun and is like, "Give me the diamond, I know that's why you're here. Degory no longer has it because it fell out of his pocket. Kaney has found it, and once Broughton and Degore come after her, she kind of runs over to this well and is holding it over uh, and is starting to throw it in. They threaten to shoot her and she's like, "Well I'll fall in too." And just as things are getting very tense in that part of the plot, the cops show up and Kaney is saved. Meanwhile, back in the tomb, a fire has broken up because they left all these oil lamps going in the midst of this uh, shootout. Nigel, in the course of his criminal activities, had put a stick of dynamite in the door, and he's warning Rafe and Betty to get away from the door. Don't let the fire get near the door. Uh, the door blows open. But Rafe and Betty are okay, and the movie ends with Rafe carrying Betty out of the flaming doorway, and uh, she cuddles close because she is saved and all of the bad guys have been thwarted. The end.
1: Yeah, there's really, like, no denouement to wrap up any of the loose ends. It just seems to be as if, like...
0: The police will sort it out.
1: Yeah, and as long as Rafe and Betty are getting together, we're fine. There's a lot of, like, ins and outs in this movie between who has the diamond when and, like, who's following who when. You know, everybody's got ulterior motives, like... Hartley puts the the dynamite in the tomb door back before Moreland even wakes up because he puts it there because he's going to try and blow it open to get inside. Mm-hmm. And this is before we even know that that's Hartley. He's just some mysterious hands doing stuff. So it can be very confusing sometimes to follow who's doing what when. and And sometimes that's on purpose by the movie. And other times... You feel like maybe you're supposed to know, but you don't. Also, for a movie that's basically about a bunch of people trying to get a diamond, it is a little weird that we only have to just kind of infer, I guess, that Betty and Rafe get it, since all the bad guys are taken care of and the police have shown up, so we can only assume that it, I guess, goes to the proper inheritors. But for my money, there's like a few too many loose ends that are left by that sudden ending, but I guess we can just assume everything works out for the best.
0: I think the, I'll say rambling nature of the plot is very purposeful. It's not like this is a poor product of writing or filmmaking or anything like that, um, but it, it feels like an updating of Cat in the Canary to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't let our, our plot summary give you the wrong idea. The reason why there's all this stuff going on is because, um, similar to what we said about the bat, I think, in that episode, Mm. there's a lot of misdirection happening, right? There's a lot of characters running around doing a lot of stuff all kind of designed to keep you guessing at what's really going on. It's just really hard when you try to summarize that back to give you a sense of it without getting into the minutiae. You, know, like you either get yeah. into the minutiae or you really gloss over things and just say, there's a bunch of people who are after a diamond, Boris Karloff is undead and chasing after them, he dies, the good guys get the diamond.
0: And I think part of what makes this exciting and, and- uh, keeps you engaged even with the diamond passing so many hands and everything is this movie has a lot of scoring mm-hmm. and it's done well it's throughout almost all of it and it's not a struggle like White Zombie with did with the scoring like the scoring here is done very well it has these key moments where you hear like a little bit of a motif with Betty or um, some suspenseful like chords going on or even just with like the use of some new stock music like the use of Wagner at the funeral.
1: Well, like, and even then um, you can tell that the Wagner at the funeral isn't just a library track. It was newly recorded for this film with the same orchestra that recorded uh, the rest of the music in this film because the arrangement sounds like the arrangement for the rest of the orchestrations. Sure. um, Which makes the difference between this and White Zombie, like you said, because White Zombie really was just needle drops of various instrumental tracks, which is why it was difficult at some times. Now, we did say that Supernatural also had a lot of music Mm -hmm. and did a fairly good job, but it really is noticeable here. Um, The score by Louis Levi really does a good job of doing the job of a score, uh, in, in like the sense that we're used to for more modern films. And it's worth saying that this film came out in August of 33 and King Kong came out in, I think, April of 33. And King Kong was really the first movie to popularize the idea of writing a score specifically for a specific film rather than using library tracks and having music, you know, all throughout a movie, really supporting it. So That's like
0: five months. Yeah,
1: so we're now into that era of filmmaking, I guess, if you want to say it that way.
0: In the case of the ghoul, they're not just doing it because it's like the new cool thing. Like, they're using it purposefully. Just as much as like, it's kind of cool. They're doing this like new technique with the scoring, mm-hmm. but relying so much on these older techniques of German expressionism.
1: Yeah, I mean, the German Expressionism is not really so much in, say, the...
0: Caligari.
1: <laughs> well, I mean to say it's not so much in the story or the themes or even the sets. It's really 100% like the lighting and the cinematography by Gunther Krampf which is very stylized and very shadowy and sometimes edges on hard to see because this movie is so dedicated to sort of taking place in, like, an inkwell <laughs> at times.
0: Yeah, the way that he does framing with the shadows. Um, there's times where there's moving shadows where it's just, like, it's supposed to be, like, trees outside the window, but, like, they really go for it. Um, And also the use of moving camera in this has been really exciting.
1: Yeah, I I could tell you were really digging the cinematography when we were watching it, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. The look of the movie with the cinematography and the sound of the movie, I guess, with the score, both really um, elevate the film's tone into something that feels darker and more sinister than I think the plot just on its own would lend itself to.
0: I agree. I think this would fall into more like The Bat Whispers mm. than anything else um if it didn't have the scoring because like The Bat Whispers had some pretty good cinematography but it was just a bit too all over the place a bit too much reliant on humor whereas this it was able to control its mood and tone setting way better.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with that.
0: Even with the humor, like, the humor mainly comes out of kind of rolling your eyes at Kaney, just, like, falling head over heels for this guy who is clearly just manipulating her, um, but also with some of the dialogue, uh, well, as is typical with, like, a British kind of sensibility.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good comebacks and retorts and put-downs in this movie, most of them coming from Rafe. Yes. Well, Before we watched the movie, I talked about the two previous Karloff movies we've seen, Old Dark House and The Mummy, and how they were more popular in the UK than they had been in the US. The Ghoul really feels like a movie that's wearing its influences on its sleeve, which can be both a strength and a weakness. Like, this is so clearly a mashup of Cat in the Canary, Old Dark House style movies and The Mummy with the Egyptology and the undead and the mysticism and stuff. I think that at times this blend of influences serves to give some new spice to either version. The the supernatural undead stuff helps make the, you know, bunch of people gathered in an old house to argue about the inheritance thing feel a little bit more new and different. And the sort of thing of like, well, he needs this diamond and there's all these people helps to give some excitement to the undead mummy stuff. There are other points in the movie where I feel like it overcomplicates things. There's this section of the movie where it's, it was a little hard for me to get a handle on where the story was going with things. And with so many characters running around with all their own agendas, the plot really needs like a clear focus to help you not just sort of get lost mm-hmm. as a viewer. The period after Morland dies and they seal him in the tomb... But before everyone ends up at the house, the movie kind of lost me for a bit. There were far too many characters just following each other in dark fogs, and you just didn't know where everyone fit yet. And, like, retrospectively, you're like, okay, I understand why we needed to introduce these people and what was going on there, but in the moment, watching it, you feel a little lost for a little while there.
0: I think it's also worth saying that that section... Is more thriller than horror because you're like, oh man, will Lang get this note to Betty in time? Um, Oh no, uh, her purse got stolen. Oh no, someone who we can't quite see who read the note and then tore it up, but then someone else found the note and put the things together. Uh, It's kind of like, who are all these people looking for this thing? I'm on the edge of my seat in this mystery thriller. Yeah. Rather than when, when it's the back of the house. And also in the beginning, it's definitely
1: horror. Yeah, and it's two different types of horror, though. Like, as we've identified, it's the old dark house horror, and it's the supernatural monster horror, right? Kind of those two sub-genres put together. Um, And then, yeah, and then we've got this mystery thriller section. And sometimes the overlap isn't as clean as maybe it could be, in my opinion. I think it's done fairly well. Mm -hmm. I know that the reason these movies have large casts is so that they can pull off those misdirections of, you know, so that the audience isn't quite sure who's where Mm -hmm. at certain times, so that you can pull off these mysteries. But I do really feel this movie has a surplus of cast. For sure. For my money, we could have done without Kaney, Dragore, Mahmud, Hartley, uh, Davis. Davies. Uh, Davies, sorry. All of those characters could probably be jettisoned and you wouldn't really lose anything of the core plot. Especially Dragore and Mahmoud, I'd rather just not have the brown face. In this movie when it's not really necessary at all.
0: Yeah, even their roles. Like, it's kind of cool the way that Dragoire manipulates Kenny through her Orientalist expectations. Is that... I, what I mean is racist. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say racist rather than Orientalist. I don't know if that's the right term. But he's, like,
1: He's twisting her fetishization of his culture to his own advantage.
0: Yeah. So, like, that was cool, but otherwise they are just kind of stereotypes, and, like, it wouldn't have even been like, oh, what if we had had an actual Middle Eastern actor play these roles? The roles would need to be revamped before before you just put a different actor in them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the writing, the way Drigori was written, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that he kind of played into these expectations of what a sheik is when, like, Really, he's just a guy. Um, <laughs> and I, I like the way he took advantage of Kaney's racism, but it, it definitely would have been nicer if the actor, Harold Huth, wasn't an Englishman from Yorkshire. It's just that ultimately, like, those characters aren't necessary, right? Like, Mahmood gets killed by Moreland, and all he does in this movie is he shows up in the first scene to meet Dragore, and then he's skulking around in the bushes later and gets killed. Dragore has this subplot with Kaney that's just kind of there, and then... You know, there's so many people who just come into scenes with a gun and take the diamond and then meet up with some other dude who takes the diamond from them, right? You don't need half of these people. For sure. There's two styles of movie happening here, right? There's the, like, British mystery thriller and then this, like, Egyptian mummy movie. Um, the differences between them are quite apparent in the performance styles of the cast. Oh? Like, Ernest Theisiger and Boris Karloff are clearly acting in the supernatural horror mold, and then the rest of the cast are over here in the mystery thriller genre. And it's sometimes, like, Karloff and Theisiger have a few different scenes together that are really great, uh, and I really enjoyed, Uh, but it is sometimes jarring when the two tracks of the movie kind of meet. You know, like, who Betty is in the mystery thriller parts of the movie versus when she intersects with Karloff and becomes like the screaming damsel in distress and stuff like, it just kind of feels like there's there's two movies happening here and they sometimes gel well together and other times they don't, for me.
0: For me, they gelled well together. So I, I definitely see where you're coming from, but for me, it, it worked. And I think maybe why I was feeling that this Mummy, old dark house, baby, <laughs> mm-hmm. worked for me. Is was it supernatural?
1: Well, it wasn't. They like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the... yeah. Like on
0: we we take a, a brief break with the the police as they're heading down, and a detective says um, that Morland was buried alive.
1: Yeah, that he was he was cataleptic, so he kind of went into like a essentially fell into a coma. And they just were like, oh, he's dead, and buried him alive. So his revival, there's nothing supernatural about it. And then obviously, you know, when he gives the diamond to Anubis, like, he doesn't become immortal, he falls over dead.
0: Yeah. So for me, because it it didn't have a supernatural element, it was the mummy, but without any of the supernatural elements, I, I didn't have as much trouble, I guess, as the movie was going back and forth between these two
1: different modes Mm. As as you seem to. I think that explains something to me then, because you liked that this movie kind of had the Scooby-Doo ending where everything's rationalized, and I was feeling like I would have liked it more if it had been legit supernatural. So maybe that's why the blend works for you and not for me, mm-hmm. because ultimately I would have preferred it to have been really uh, a supernatural thing. I suppose it makes sense that they went with the rationalized route, There's something very English about that in my mind. There's a certain point where the movie crosses the line into the ridiculous with how many people start showing up out of the shadows with a gun asking (laughs) for the diamond.
0: That, I think, was supposed to be a bit of a release for the audience who's been terrified this whole way through, right? It's kind of a release to be like, what, someone else out of the shadows? But I I also think the person ending up being, like, someone else is... um, Knowing that the play adaptation of the novel was done by Frank King and his friend, Reverend Leonard Hines, right. I feel like it was like a, yeah, wouldn't it be funny? Yeah, we'll make the farce a criminal. Yeah, that'll be great.
1: Yeah, it's just like, he's... It's one of those things where, um, you know, it's, it's that question of, like, does the reveal work in the early parts of the movie once you know it, right? Like, his character is so based in, like, I'm concerned for this man's soul, and you know it makes sense that okay it's well it's cuz he wants to get to the tomb to get access to this stuff um but the religious aspect of the early part of the movie did make me start thinking about you know in all of these supernatural horror movies like the mummy or uh dracula or whatever to believe in that supernatural stuff really raises a lot of questions if you're like in the audience and you are a christian because like you know for a movie like the mummy In order for Imhotep to be alive, that means that, like, Egyptian religion has to be true. Yeah. Right? So, like, that raises some questions, (laughs) right? So, it made sense to me that they did go with the rationalization, but I think one of the reasons I wanted them to really go full Supernatural is I felt the moments where I was enjoying myself the most watching this movie, were the moments where they really went for it with, like, Boris Karloff with his unibrow and weird makeup going around, like, choking them and crashing through windows and that stuff, and those moments really felt really cool to me, and I felt almost, like, let down when it all turned out to be, you know, nothing uh, at the end of it.
0: To kind of hark back to what you said earlier, like, you can really see how this movie is trying to do The Mummy crossed with Old Dark House, because you know obviously the mummy but then karloff's makeup as the uh i guess undead morland is very similar to his makeup in old dark house yeah
1: it really is huh
0: yeah i i felt like karloff did a fairly good job in this movie even though he was kind of stuck again doing his
1: shtick of a mute shambling monster it was unfortunate to me that, like, for his big return to the UK,
0: but he had a great performance in the beginning. Yeah, he was dying. Yes,
1: his his scene at the beginning where he's on his deathbed, especially once it's him and uh, Lang, Ernest Thysiger, in the room together. That's a really good scene. He's really he's really good there.
0: And I'm willing to kind of be like, okay, yeah, he was shambling. That kind of sucks. But this film opened up doors for him to do other types of roles in the U.S. Yeah, So I'm kind of okay that he had to end up doing this.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a, a give-the-people-what-they-want kind of situation. situation. Yeah. The rest of the cast is pretty uniformly good. Yeah, uh, They're extremely English yeah. in some places.
0: This definitely falls into that Old Dark House genre, but I appreciated the believable justification and how it updates this Ken the Canary-esque film to almost like an old dark house
1: quality you know after watching night of terror last week it really was a better update of this cliche and it was very enjoyable to watch i i think it could have been better in places but uh i'd still agree that i i really had a fun time watching it yeah so where were you looking for the ghoul sarah
0: well, given that this film is a cross between The Mummy and Old Dark House, at first I looked at The Mummy. <laughs> That's
1: a big range, Sarah.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, and I was like, this movie's better than The Mummy. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at The Old Dark House and I was like, this movie isn't as good as Old Dark House. Mm-hmm. And then because to me it felt very much like Cat and the Canary, I looked at Cat and the Canary and I was like, this movie's better than Cat and the Canary to me.
1: Okay, so you picked a specific spot. Yes. I had a bit more difficulty. Okay. Than that, I have sort of a range. Um, I thought it had the potential to be declared better than Cat and the Canary. But then looking below the Cat and the Canary and looking at Vampyr, I was going, well, I really like the cinematography in this movie. It's really good. But I think Vampyr's doing a lot of interesting things that this movie really isn't in terms of innovation. You know, yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, this movie is just, hey, let's take... Boris Karloff's last two movies, and mush them together. Like, that's not really innovative, even if you do a good job of it.
0: Yeah, I, I was torn because I, I totally agree. It's not innovative, and even the German Expressionist influences, it's like, it's done well mm. here, but it's not new.
1: You know, and then right below Vampire is the Student of Prague mm. remake from nineteen twenty six that has the same cinematographer as this. Mm-hmm. And if we're comparing the cinematography... Between the two, I think Student of Prague does more and does it better in terms of, like, the camera stuff in that movie.
0: Oh, I I would disagree.
1: Okay, interesting. There's a lot of cinematography that's very strong in this movie. There's a lot of suspense that's very strong in this movie. But there's also a lot in this movie that's derivative. And, you know, not as iconic as White Zombie, maybe, or Freaks, maybe, or Vampire maybe, or, you know, some of these other films.
0: Because this movie brings together these two influences, and for me, did it very well, Mm -hmm. and makes a fairly cohesive movie, I felt like this movie was more cohesive than Freaks, for example. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot in that episode on Freaks about how you could just kind of come in at the halfway point and go for the horror elements. Mm -hmm. The first half isn't even horror, it's setting up why we should care about These people. Sure. We could narrow your range to be number 11, so replacing Cat and the Canary, down to 14, replacing Freaks.
1: Okay, so I have a. So you sort of initially pitched between Phantom of the Opera and Cat and the Canary. Yes. Why do you feel this is better than Cat and the Canary? What's the thing that puts it above that movie?
0: Because it balances its tone a lot better. Um, Kevin Canary does a really good job of balancing its tone and making it really suspenseful and amazing um, and largely due to its German expressionism, its moving camera, but then it has the comedy and the romance. Um, like the dude with the glasses who's, like, under the bed... Yeah. ...watching people undress.
1: And then he's he's actually the, the romantic interest at the end. She just sort of marries him because it'll get everyone else off her back, right? It's like, oh, well, if I have a husband, you can't come after me.
0: Yeah. Whereas this, you know, uh, I feel like Betty has about the same amount of agency as the protagonist in Ken the Canary. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Rafe's a better... Match, even though he's kind of an asshole, because he's not, like, a comic relief idiot, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, he sort of comes to admire Betty because he realizes, like, she's got nerve and she's not going to back down. And and the things that he doesn't like about her at the start, which is, like, that she's stubborn and willful, ends up being the stuff that he likes about her by the end, which is kind of cool.
0: And even the comic relief of Kaney, her being manipulated and also humor in the witty script.
1: Sure. So you, you're sort of arguing that everything that these two movies do that's the same, you think the ghoul does sort of better? Yes. Okay. I see your arguments as to why this is better than Cat in the Canary, and I kind of agree with them. On the other hand, I don't think this movie's better than the remake of Student of Prague or Vampire. but this sort of is an issue that occurred because Cat in the Canary got put, well... Vampire got put below Cat in the Canary which um, happened because you didn't like you don't like Vampire as much as I like Vampire. So that's sort of why I'm having now this issue where um, <laughs> I don't like this movie as much as Vampire but I do like it better than Cat in the Canary but that sort of creates a paradox here. Ah, it's tough because I think Vampire is and, and Student program more innovative. I find that final stretch of Student of Prague where it's Baldwin on the run from his double, you know, and there's that shot where he's he's running and he can't get any farther away and all that kind of stuff, like, is so effective and so chilling in a way this movie never really quite gets to. Sure. Um, You know, and I find Vampyr really chilling in the way that a nightmare that you can't really understand is frightening. Um, On the other hand, I prefer The Ghoul to Cat in the Canary because the threat in the ghoul is more clear and present, right? Like, in Cat in the Canary, as you said, it's a guy under a mask. And here, it really is Moreland. He's not supernaturally back from the dead, but he is going around killing people, and it's, you know, there's no masks to pull off at the end. So, I'm conflicted, I guess, about where this movie goes in that stretch of three movies.
0: I think the other reason why Cat in the Canary is... Higher than Vampire and the remake of Student of Prague is because it was like the first time an American horror movie was doing something that was pretty scary and mm. doing this German expressionism. So because it was like the first, mm-hmm. so with Ken the Canary* being like the first American film to do this German expressionism thing, and *The Ghoul* being the first British For horror sure. film, yeah. What do you think about comparing? I guess we can't really see the impact
1: yet. Well, Cat in the Canary has the greater impact automatically because Cat in the Canary impacted the ghoul, right? Like, like ultimately, you know, the ghoul isn't inventing anything new. It's doing a really good job with what it has, but it's not inventing anything new. You know, uh, Cat in the Canary is. That's the name of the episode that we cover Cat in the Canary in. Like, Cat in the Canary is you know, really setting a genre, a subgenre in stone, you know, of people in a mansion, and there's an inheritance, and it's spooky. And it also invents a whole bunch of cinematic techniques that all these movies afterwards used. And if the ghoul wasn't directly using Cat in the Canary as a source, I think... You could make some argument about, well, which had the better influ- the bigger influence on their respective industries, right? Did the ghoul influence British horror more or less than Cat in the Canary influenced American horror? But ultimately, the Cat in the Canary influenced the ghoul. So I think Cat in the Canary kind of wins that point. And if we're talking about the value of innovation on the genre going forward, that bumps the ghoul down a lot of spots in my mind, simply because... There's a lot of movies here that I think were more innovative than it. Ultimately, where I feel sort of comfortable putting The Ghoul is below the Student of Prague remake above Freaks because of the fact that even though it does a lot of things that were in Cat in the Canary better, you know, without Cat in the Canary, you don't get The Ghoul.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: This movie and Student of Prague have the same cinematographer. I was saying I liked the cinematography in Student of Prague better, and you said you disagreed. Yeah. And I'm curious as to what you liked about the cinematography in this movie better, and did you feel like the cinematographer in question, Gunther Krampf, like, do you think that he's evolved or improved based on the ghoul versus this earlier work?
0: Yes, I do think he's uh, improved. The part that sticks out of my mind as, like, kind of the key German expressionist, depiction in the remake of Student of Prague is when Scapinelli, his shadow, is reaching up the wall and grabs the note that's at the top of the railing where our two main characters are uh, and has it fall down to the girl. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that's like the visual that sticks out of my mind. Mm -hmm. In this movie, I mean, we also just finished watching it, so it's sticking out of my mind more.
1: Recency bias.
0: Yeah, but I was just so impressed by how they use the shadow throughout the entire film. There's... It's pretty early in the film, but there's a point where we have framing with the shading that's kind of creating this arch and this walkway. Uh, the way that there's some um, use interesting use of lighting to do almost like a spotlight when someone pulls out the diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, when... Lang is like looking out onto the street, and uh, we see him through the window glass, and there's like black shadow on his head and he on his forehead, and he just kind of backs into the shadow in kind of like a Jane Eyre kind of way for some reason in my brain. Like it was just so consistent, and it's dedication to the shadows, Mm -mm. like so much of the Student of Prague remake happens in the daytime. Like, the parts that you're remembering, um, and and you didn't specifically bring it up here, but you you talk about it off-mic, I guess, Um, when Scapinelli is directing the hunting.
1: Right, sure.
0: That's really cool, but it's just in the daytime. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when Baldwin is being haunted by his doppelganger, all that stuff is really cool, but would you consider it cinematography when it's stunts?
1: Sure, and special effects and staging and that sort of thing. So
0: that stuff is cool, but if we're just talking cinematography,
1: right? I just I wanted to address this point because I feel like you've niched out an identity for yourself on the show as like the voice and representative of German Expressionism. (laughs) uh, Somehow, I don't know when or how that happened, but I think it did. So I wanted to address, you know, because these films had the same cinematographer. You're feeling on these things. I would be okay with putting this... If you really feel like Gunther Krampf, you know, goes for it in a dedicated way in this film that you didn't see in Student of Prague, I'd be okay with putting this above Student of Prague, below Vampyr. Okay. I just can't put this above Vampyr. That's that's really, like, it just doesn't deserve it in my mind.
0: Okay. I'm really happy about that. This movie is seven years in Gunther Kromf's career after the remake of Student of Prague. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, in seven years, you get better at your craft, um, and I think we really see it here. And I think it's also um, because he just immigrated to Britain with the help of, was it the producer or the director?
1: The producer, yeah.
0: Um, So he's wanting to bring his A-game,
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Rather than just like, I mean, I don't want to say just, but rather than this remake of a film with, like, a really prominent actor, and, like, this is going to be really cool. I'm working with Conrad Veit and that's really cool, but it's not like, no, I, I gotta show why it was good for you to get me out of Germany.
1: Yeah. So coming in at number 13, a pretty good showing, I mm-hmm. would think. Um, we now have 48 films on the list, so 13's not bad. Uh, it's The Ghoul from 1933 directed by T. Hayes Hunter.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see where other films have ranked, and there are also links to listen to those episodes so you can kind of hear the discussion about how those films landed where they are. On our website, there is an ask box where you can submit questions, concerns, and if you have an appeal to suggest if you feel that we should reconsider This film or other films, please drop us a line. You're also free to contact us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
1: Screamscene updates every Wednesday. We upload to SoundCloud, and you can also find us on iTunes, uh, as well as through any podcasting app that you prefer through our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, some ways you can do that uh, include leaving us a review on iTunes uh, or a comment on SoundCloud or just letting people you know know about the show. <laughs> um, Did
0: you mean to do a rhyming No, thing there?
1: No, that's why I got sort of tripped up saying it. <laughs> the best way for podcast audiences to grow is through word of mouth. So if you know anyone who might like an in-depth look at classic horror cinema, let them know about our
0: show. So what are we watching next week,
1: Ben? I think you're going to be pleased with what we're watching next week. Okay. Uh, I think you're going to be excited. Um, It's the movie that Boris Karloff turned down to appear in The Ghoul, uh, which was Universal Studios' 1933 film directed by James Whale, The Invisible Man. Yes. Starring Claude Rains.
0: My boy, Claude Rains.
1: (laughs) You love this movie. I
0: love this movie. Claude Rains is so good. When we first watched this movie a while ago, the I think the only other movie I'd seen Claude Rains in was Casablanca. Right. Uh, and then seeing him in this, it was just like,
1: wow, he's so cool. He's good in everything.
0: So that's what we're watching next week. So excited. Uh, well, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.